The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Hello and welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for July 15th, 2020. I'm Justin Robert Young. You know, I, I should be in Milwaukee right now. I should be in Milwaukee right now. I should be. Man, I'd be double-fisting two spotted cows. That's a beer that you can only get in Wisconsin, and I'd just be guzzling them. Oh, I'd be so happy. I'd be in hog heaven because I'd be covering the Democratic National Convention, which was supposed to be happening now, planned for four years, not happening, add that to the Olympics and maybe the Republican National Convention. Of course, we will have a virtualized version of the DNC. And I will be going out to Jacksonville for whatever the hell this Republican version is going to be. But we're late in the game. I mean, four years ago, we had just gotten the first big Russia leak from inside the DNC. We had just gotten all that. Donald Trump had just... Did the uh, uh, rush of your listening go find Hillary's emails? In fact, really, that was that was the the beginning of of the Russia narrative, right? Like, like the first time I remember hearing about Russia was when the DNC emails got leaked. Robbie Mook, I was flying into Philadelphia for that convention. And on the headrest television, there's Robbie Mook, the head of the Hillary campaign, saying, we believe it was Russia. And I remember saying to myself, Russia? Oh, okay. Come on, man. Boris and Natasha, they got in there? That's what happened? And lo, the intervening four years happened. So we do have a lot to talk about. We do have a lot to talk about. We have uh, uh, some results. We got uh, some some matchups now for November, including the tragic story of Jeff Sessions. We have a campaign undertaker appearance, or do we? We've got a look into the past. This is going to be a treat. But your friend and mine, the only guest host this show has ever known, Tom Merritt, apparently got a wild hair to go back in time and investigate UBI, Universal Basic Income, and how an unlikely president almost brought it into reality. We also have an interview with an expert comparing and contrasting the presidential rhetoric of Donald Trump and Barack Obama. 
And she makes a point in this interview that totally blew my mind of how the public relates to Washington, D.C. So you got to stay tuned for that. Before we get going, however, one little niblet, just a little niblet, something that may not be anything, but it may open a, a portal to hell, the likes of which we have not ever seen. And that is that uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been hospitalized. Uh, it is an infection. Prognosis is good. She should be fine. Should be. But RBG has been in and out of the hospital a little bit over the past few years. And despite the fact that she keeps in very good health for a woman her age... She is a woman her age. She's 87 years old. Obviously, we have a lot of importance put on the Supreme Court in this country. And considering the rash of 5-4 decisions that went down with Chief Justice John Roberts often siding with the liberal wing of the court, this will be a big appointment if and when Ruth Bader Ginsburg steps down, or her spot is vacated, he said ominously. This is compounded by the fact that four years ago, speaking of four years ago, Antonin Scalia died. It was at that moment that cocaine Mitch made one of the all-time Senate gambles. He refused to even consider Obama's uh, offering for that position, Merrick Garland, and instead said it was up to the American people to decide. That, in the four years ago comparable time frame, was 151 days ago. So, let's say, and... Wishing no ill will. Obviously, we are only just trying to think two steps ahead on this podcast. We wish Ruth Bader Ginsburg a very speedy recovery. And, of course, she should have the utmost uh, uh, possibility to, to end her legacy however she might in stepping down from the court, whenever she might. But... If we are in a world where we need to plan for every scenario and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for whatever reason, decides that she needs to leave before the end of this campaign, will Cocaine Mitch run the hurry-up offense and try to get another justice appointed? Something to ponder. But first... Thank you, Alabama. Thank you for your trust, your confidence, your message of change is loud and clear. Oh, 
That is former Auburn football coach Tommy Tuberville. He uh, is now your GOP nominee for Senate in a favorable race against Doug Jones. A lot to unpack on this one. And we're going to start with Jeff Sessions because this is pretty much the end of his political career. Jeff Sessions was first elected from the state of Alabama as a senator in 1997. He served in that position for 20 years until 2017 when he decided that he was going to take the attorney general position in the Trump administration. Sessions had been an early endorser of Trump and one of the first sitting politicians that would bring some of that elected Tea Party energy to the Trump campaign. He was not insignificant when you look at the snowball of what the Trump campaign was. Of course, he then recuses himself in the Russia investigation. Trump never forgives him. He eventually is fired. And then he decides to run for his own seat back. Now, the funny thing about it is that if he would have won over Tuberville, the, the, the Wikipedia would have shown that Jeff Sessions wins a six-year term and then he was running for that same six-year term again. But of course, in the meantime, once he took the attorney general position, the wacky special election between Doug Jones, the Democrat, and Roy Moore. Remember Roy Moore? Sassy rides again. The man who could not uh, apparently fend off the feminine wiles of teenage girls. That is legal for a 30-year-old man to court, but he was so creepy he got banned from a mall. That Roy Moore? Yeah, the man that could have Alabama go blue. Indeed did. Doug Jones will be the incumbent in the race, but... Jeff Sessions decided to go back and run for that seat again, and he lost. Uh, uh, this one was uh, a, a race that really did tilt on the fact that Jeff Sessions' experience worked against him. Normally, when you are somebody like that, when you're somebody like Jeff Sessions, you just kind of sit in that seat forever. Everyone knows you, crazy name recognition, but he really lost this race because of Trump. He bet big on Trump. Things wound up going south. And in the meantime, Alabama fell in love with Donald Trump. And so, political novice, Tommy Tuberville, who apparently retired to Florida before moving back to Alabama to run for this seat, he is now your GOP challenger to Doug Jones. By the way, if you don't know a lot about Alabama, understand that there are uh, 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 two major religions, and that is Alabama Crimson Tide football and Auburn Tiger football. And Tommy Tuberville, the former Auburn football coach, it was it was close, but he won in Tuscaloosa. So that's a good sign for him because for a while, as the votes were coming in, the the only major population center that Jeff Sessions was still winning was indeed 
where Alabama, their football rivals, <laughs> are based, which was very funny. But Tupperville did get the Roll Tide voters, and uh, uh, we will see where that goes from there. But in the meantime, via con Dios, Jeff Sessions. Let's move northward to Maine. Another big Senate seat that will be watched is moderate Republican Susan Collins. You will remember her name as somebody that has been a swing vote in pretty much any major issue involving the Senate, including impeachment and Supreme Court justice confirmations. Her and Lisa Murkowski are are the two But Susan Collins now has her opponent, and it will be Maine State House Speaker Sarah Gideon. Uh, Sarah Gideon getting an endorsement from the Hill Dog today. Hillary Clinton making her voice heard in this general election race. And speaking of centrists, we uh, move down to Texas. MJ Heger will face John Cornyn. Of course, the Senate uh, uh, race in Texas was the talk of the country in 2018 when Beto O'Rourke ran a very close race against Ted Cruz. The difference between Ted Cruz and John Cornyn is that John Cornyn's a little bit more popular in Texas. So while many Texas Democrats thought that Beto would be better suited running in this race, specifically with his fundraising prowess, he decided to run for president and now professionally posts skateboard and Whataburger videos on his Instagram. And it is up to the Air Force veteran MJ Heger to take down Cornyn. Uh, uh, Heger has been criticized as being too much of a centrist. Uh, She is somebody that progressives attacked as not electrifying some of the base in the same way that Beto did. She is more conservative and their argument, the Texas progressive argument is, if you're not going to give substantially different policies to vote for, then why? Why would anybody want to cross the aisle? You might as well go with the devil you know or just stay home. But on the other hand, there are some that say Texas is in play. Trump's unpopular. His coattails aren't going to be that long. Maybe uh, Biden catches fire and, and now there is indeed a blue wave. And that would put an acceptable candidate like MJ into the winner's circle. I don't know how much I think that's feasible. I, I I think Beto was a very, a very Texas Democrat candidate. All the Texas Democrats I know, and I know a fair amount of them because a lot of my friends are in, you know, Dallas and <laughs> Austin. So that's where the Texas Democrats live. They were electrified by Beto. They loved Beto. I don't get that same heat from MJ. At least right now, of course, things can change, especially now that we've got races to actually watch.
no. Uh-uh. Nope. 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 Uh-uh. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not even going to do it. I'm not going to do the pallbearer voice. Because this is not done. Nothing is over. All right? I said I wasn't going to talk about Kanye. Well, guess what? I'm talking about Kanye now. Hurry up with my damn croissant. I'm talking about Kanye. Because if there's one thing that I made a promise to you, the listener of this show, is that I will take the minutia and ridiculousness of politics seriously. I will explain to you what is ridiculous and why it is ridiculous, and then we can all make a decision together on what we care about and what we don't care about. So I don't care whether or not you care about Kanye running. I don't care if you think that Kanye is good or bad for the election. I don't care if you think that that him running the government like Wakanda is, is, is a good, bad, or silly idea, because I want to give you guys a bit-by-bit lesson in how a dumb story makes us all even dumber. And I don't even think the story is dumb. I think that the headline is dumb. And it has made everybody else infected, like the coronavirus, spreading around outlet to outlet, making everybody stupider. So here's the initial article, the Intelligencer from New York Magazine. Headline, Kanye's short-lived attempt to get on the 2020 ballot. Now, there are no lies detected in that headline. And in that article, it does some pretty good, I mean, if by sending four emails and getting five text messages is good reporting, which it often can be and is. I don't want to take the, 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 the steam out of it. But it is just a back and forth with a couple get-out-the-vote vendors. So one in Florida where there was like a week to get uh, uh, over 100,000 signatures to get on the ballot. And Kanye apparently contacted this guy and then they didn't contact this guy. And so the vendor tells the reporter for New York Magazine, Ben Jacobs, that Kanye's out. He's not running. All right, so let's pause here and let's know what we know. It was going to be impossible from the moment that Kanye West announced that he was going to run for president again in 2020, not 2015, to get on the ballot in all 50 states. He was too late to co-opt another party that would already have ballot access in all 50 states, like the Greens or the Libertarians. He was going to run via his own party. I told you on this show last week, for those of you who didn't skip it, that this was going to be a write-in campaign, if it existed at all. So what do we care that he didn't get on ballots that he wasn't going to get on in the first place. We don't, is, 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 is the short answer there. And then on top of that, what we now see, the headlines now, because as Michael Keaton taught us in the classic multiplicity, when you make a copy of a copy of a copy, it just gets less sharp. Now the headlines are 
Kanye West drops out of presidential race. Which again, the larger question is exactly how much he was in it in the beginning, but he certainly has made no material changes to whether or not he believes he is going to run. And meanwhile, here's a little science experiment for you. Whenever you see one of those Kanye drops out headlines, go into the article and see where their sourcing is. Because at least as I am recording this at 9.50 a.m. Pacific time on July 15th, there is no original sourcing. Everybody is just repeating what that Intelligencer article said. On the contrary, a national poll was run this week that showed Kanye West would have 2% of the vote. Now, obviously, that is statistically irrelevant when it comes to actually winning. But just to give you context, that 2% is tied with Joe Jurgensen. She is the Libertarian Party nominee. They do have ballot access on all 50 states. And double the 1% of Howie Hawkins of the Green Party. So take Kanye West as seriously as the Libertarian Party and double as seriously as you would the Green Party, according to this poll. As for Kanye himself, he spent yesterday tweeting about a chair he likes. I'm not kidding. Go to his Twitter account and look at the chair he likes. It looks like somebody sat in... Alex Mack from the secret world of Alex Mack when she was in her morphing Capri Sun puddle form. I don't know. It seems fine, yay. But this story just bothers It shows you how fast, with an absence of information, misinformation can spread. Because the New York Magazine article did a good job of qualifying Hey, look, this is a secondhand source that's not inside Kanye West's camp that says that Kanye West is not running. Kanye West has not said anything. But I will tell you this. The fact that that article went as viral as it did is continuing to go viral. And Kanye's already at 2%. That, to me, does show that if he seriously wanted to run a write-in campaign, it would be something to watch. But more importantly, we all need to remember that, of course, this wasn't real. Waves don't die. You know, somebody made a really, really, really good point in my Twitch chat the other day. In fact, I think it was Meryl Barr, my my friend Meryl Barr. And he said, as a new patron at TakePoliticsSeriously.com, the thing that he didn't realize he was going to get was how much faster the episodes got to him. And it's true. Even at 
the big tent level, the $1 level, you get that custom RSS feed. You put that in to the podcatcher of your choice. And the episodes come to you, I mean, probably sometimes 12 hours before they show up in other places. And it's not because we're deliberately holding them. It's just that I post the episodes to Patreon literally as soon as I'm done with them. And that's just going to get to you faster than whatever needs to happen on the back end for Apple and Spotify and every other directory. And these are for the free episodes. The ones that normally come in on on whatever uh, feeds you have just that much quicker. Now, of course, that RSS feed is also helpful when you're at the $3 level because you get the bonus content. And if you're at the $10 level, you get your name right at the end. If you are at the crazy donor level, then you get your name right at the beginning. But at any level, you get that RSS feed. So this is even just a notice to everybody that's on Patreon. If you are not using that RSS feed, then you're not getting the PX3 show as fast as you possibly could. And specifically, when we're getting into the election season and news is coming a little bit faster than it would otherwise, those extra couple hours can uh, really make a difference before everything that I'm saying is totally invalidated. So head on over there right now. TakePoliticsSeriously.com So I get an email. I think it was a text message, actually. This weekend. From your friend and mine, Tom Merritt. Now, let me tell you a little something about our friend Tom Merritt. Tom Merritt is the most successful podcaster I know. He's done so much. If you're not aware, the Daily Tech News Show, where I guest every Thursday, is a massive success. It's a top Patreon account, uh... All, all told, uh, Tom has brought that franchise to now three different companies, the third being his own. And he currently has a Kickstarter for a new show called Current Geek Chronicles with him and Scott Johnson. And let me tell you, I've heard an episode of that show. It is nothing like Tom has ever done before. Tom has always done far more uh, uh, live-to-tape kind of stuff, talk show formatty kind of stuff. This is very polished, like Radio Lab good. Trust me. It's worth your time and money if you want to support it. Uh, uh, just go ahead and look up the Kickstarter for Current Geek Chronicles. I say all of this not to do an ad for Tom, but rather to illustrate exactly how busy this dude is. This dude is working... All the time. He is somebody, I work all the time on podcasts. And I look at Tom and I'm like, I'm not working hard enough. That's how much Tom works. So imagine my surprise when he just freelance did a segment of this show for me. He just researched and did and, and just, he just gave me a final product. And it's great. And we're going to play it right now. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Tom Merritt. 
America is spending too much money and not getting enough in return. You hear that about a lot of things. Welfare is just one of the many examples of government entitlements that are being wasted, you might hear someone say. It would be better if we just gave people money and let them decide what to do with it. Maybe you think I'm talking about this guy. If you've heard anything about me, you've heard that there's an Asian man running for president who wants to give everyone $1,000 a month. But I'm talking about this guy. And a basic federal minimum would be provided, the same in every state. What I am proposing is that the federal government build the foundation under the income of every American family with dependent children that cannot care for itself. President Lyndon Johnson started it in 1964. And this administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America. Food stamps, Medicare, Medicaid, they are just a few of the enduring programs started as part of President Johnson's Great Society. And of course, Johnson built on Social Security and the other programs from President Roosevelt's New Deal in the 1930s. One of the programs that had its roots in the 1930s was essential to Johnson's War on Poverty, the Aid to Assist Families with Dependent Children, or AFDC. When Richard Nixon became president in 1969, the projected cost of the AFDC was $6 billion. In 1960s money, that's a lot. States and cities hated it because it was eating up their budgets. It had started to get its bad reputation for helping people coast off benefits without working. And yet, a 1969 Harris poll found that 73% of participants considered poverty aid a universal basic right. Yeah, that's right. In 1969, just about three quarters of Americans believed it was the government's job to give poor people money. So you couldn't just scrap it. You had to reform it. Nixon wanted to create a reform that would lift people out of poverty and eventually make the program itself unnecessary. That had been Roosevelt's dream, too. Two of Nixon's leading advisors, sociologist Daniel Moynihan, who would later become Senator Moynihan, and economist Milton Friedman, proposed the idea of a negative income tax, replace welfare and such with a straight payment. Would this work? Or would it backfire and cause people not to work? Nixon wanted to find out. Friedman's ideas were already being tested as part of the New Jersey Graduated Income Work Experiment, which Johnson's administration had put under the supervision of the Office of Economic Opportunity. Nixon's man now supervised that office and that project. That man was Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah, that Donald Rumsfeld. In this case, he's a known known. And young Rumsfeld hired a special assistant to help him by the name of Dick Cheney. Yes, that vice president, Dick Cheney. The tests were expanded and eventually basic income was provided to more than 8,500 people in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Iowa, North Carolina, Indiana, Seattle, and Denver. The study addressed three main questions. Would people work significantly less if they received a guaranteed income? Would the program be too expensive? And would it prove politically unfeasible? So, what did Rumsfeld and Shaney tell Nixon? Well, 
reduction in work was limited. The study found a decline in paid work of 9% on average per family, but mostly among women in their 20s with young children, which you could argue maybe was a good thing. It let mothers spend more time with their kids. And later research would argue that even that 9% was exaggerated as government records showed more paid work than the subjects of the program self-reported. There were also some other factors to consider on that 9%. Some people in the program stopped work to get a degree, which eventually led to higher paid work down the road. In fact, among the New Jersey subjects of the study, the rate of high school graduations rose 30%. Now, the story goes that Nixon was impressed by the work and ready to announce a generous basic income package when an advisor named Martin Anderson sneaked in, often described like a villain in a stage play, and threw down a report on a 150-year-old case from England called A Short History of a Family Security System. Supposedly, Nixon's mind was changed by reading that report into adapting the plan to include an employment requirement. While it's possible that Martin Anderson who was a follower of Ayn Rand, single-handedly turned Nixon from announcing universal basic income in 1969, it seems somewhat more likely that him being Nixon, it was a purely political calculation. Democrats and Republicans, including candidate Nixon, had spoken out against the idea of what was then called guaranteed income during the 1968 election. So, Nixon announcing UBI would have been well out of character. What does seem rooted in fact and might explain Nixon changing his mind a small amount is that on August 7th, 1968, Nixon told Moynihan he'd been reading biographies of folks like UK Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli. And according to a 1973 New York Times piece, Nixon told Moynihan, Tory men and liberal policies are what have changed the world. Using conservative principles to enact the opposition's policies better than they did to make a mark on history? Now that sounds like something out of the Nixon playbook. Nixon put together a proposed replacement for the AFDC called the Family Assistance Plan, or the FAP. It focused on households with children. A family of four with no other income would be eligible for $1,600 a year. Now, in 2020 money, that's around $12,000 a year. So, not a lot. Nixon's plan scaled based on income from work in a way that meant you wouldn't lose money if you got a job. And unlike the AFDC, eligibility didn't change if you were married or divorced, and it didn't penalize you based on how many parents lived in the household. Nixon's plan did require that adult recipients register with the state employment service, but supposedly, Nixon said privately, I don't care a damn about the work requirement. This is the price of getting $1,600. Whatever his motivations, whatever his attitude, the plan was popular. 90% of newspapers, meaning a fair number of conservative papers. Remember, this is a time when most cities still had two daily newspapers, maybe even more. One of them generally leaned towards the Democrats and one towards the Republicans. Labor unions supported it. The National Council of Churches supported it. A 1970 Gallup poll found 65% of the U.S. electorate supported it. In April 1970, it passed the Democratic-controlled House 243 to 155. And 
That was split. 140 Democrats and 103 Republicans voted for this plan put forward by a Republican president. 84 Democrats and 71 Republicans voted against it. So here we go, right? Only Nixon could go to China, and only Nixon could win Johnson's war on poverty. Right? Well, no. Because it failed in the Senate. Senate conservatives... On both the Republican and Democrat side, there were still conservative Democrats back then, argued that this plan would discourage work, despite the evidence provided by Rumsfeld's office. And liberal senators thought it should give more money and not include a work requirement at all. But of course, Nixon doesn't give up. In June 1971, a revised version was added to a bill that was amending the Social Security Act. So they tried to ride it in on wider reform. This revised version included phasing out food stamps and medical benefits as people gained more money from Nixon's family assistance plan. And it also changed the scale so you got less money the more you worked. Now, this appeased some of the folks worried about giving away money to lazy people, but it potentially would replicate the problem of the AFDC, where getting a job in some cases would make you less money. Even so, this passed the House with 288 votes as part of the larger bill. That's 45 more votes than the original version got just on its own. But it once again failed the Senate. And it failed because of the Nixon Family Assistance Plan, the wider Social Security reform bill with the FAP removed would go on to be passed. Well, that second version had been a Hail Mary pass anyway, a last-ditch bipartisan attempt to address expensive, expanding, and less-than-effective welfare and replace it with something Nixon thought was simpler and more fair. It ran up against fears of being unfair, immoral, and up against a low-key racism that didn't like the idea of more money going to minorities. Reform of the welfare system would end up becoming the province of a Democratic president, Bill Clinton, working with a Republican Congress led by Newt Gingrich in 1996. The Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act of 1996 finally replaced AFDC. Unlike Nixon's plan, it required recipients to begin working after two years and limited total benefits to five years. It favored two-parent families and discouraged children outside of marriage. But the argument over a social safety net has not ended, as evidenced by Andrew Yang's campaign message and the slow rise of awareness about basic income as an idea. It could have been a different conversation. Whether you think Clinton and Gingrich's TANF is ultimately a better solution than Nixon and Rumsfeld's FAP. But then, we don't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. Our guest today is Jennifer Murchia. She's an associate professor in the Department of Communication at Texas A&M University and the author of the brand new book, Demagogue for President, the rhetorical genius of Donald Trump. She joins us now. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, uh, political rhetoric is kind of a, a fascination of mine. Uh, a couple of years ago, 
me and a friend uh, put together a a card game called The Contender, the game of presidential debate, based on our fascination with how effective yet unnatural uh, political communication and speeches and debates were. You have written a book uh, about specifically Donald Trump's use of rhetoric, but also you've written a lot about Obama in the past. So I am so curious to pick your brain on this. Uh, let's start with Trump. What sets him apart from other presidents? Yeah, Donald Trump has been amazing, um, if you really think about it, at setting the nation's agenda um, very successfully for five years now. Um, I think in the last few months, he's lost the ability to do that um, as well as he had in the past. But, you know, just about every day we're talking about what Trump wants us to talk about. We're talking about it in the way that Trump wants us to talk about it. Um, he's just amazing at using, you know, frankly, fallacies, um, things that would disqualify you in competitive debate. Um, but, you know, distraction techniques like ad hominem or ad baculum, um, you know, he's just really good at controlling the conversation and making us talk about exactly what he wants us to talk about. Now, a lot of that is Twitter. Right. Obviously, in his rallies and, and when there were debates, the, those were kind of the big sparkling moments. But the thing that is everlasting is his Twitter account. Uh, how does that factor in to how you calculate what an effective communication strategy is since it is such a new technology? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so he does very effectively set the nation's agenda through Twitter, which when you think about it, um, you know, most of America is not on Twitter. And so the fact that he's able to control what we're talking about, even though we're not seeing firsthand the conversation itself is, is, is a pretty um, amazing trick. Um, so, you know, scholars like me who study the president and communication, um, talk about an institutional relationship between the president and the way they communicate. Um, they call that the rhetorical presidency model of the presidency. And it says that since, you know, maybe Teddy Roosevelt, definitely since Woodrow Wilson, presidents have used the mass media to go around the heads of Congress or over the heads of Congress and to speak directly to the people. And in doing that, they put pressure on Congress to enact their agenda. Scholars who write about that talk about that as a second constitution, that it actually changed uh, the way we relate to the government. So Congress used to be the primary you know, thing that we attended to. It used to be where we directed, directed all of our attention and news coverage. And with the emergence of the rhetorical presidency, um, Congress started to shrink both in power and respect, and the president emerged um, as the central part of the American political system. So what has happened in the last two presidencies, so since George W. Bush, um, presidents have had the ability to also go around the news filter because of social media, because of cell phone technology, blogs, right wing media, all of that stuff. Um, presidents since George W. Bush have gone around the news filter and over the heads of Congress to speak directly to the people. Trump is um, better at it than the previous two, um, largely because of the way he uses Twitter. 
Okay, hold on. Well, we're, we're, we we got to we got to pedal back just a little bit because you, you kind of blew <laughs> my mind answer, there. Uh, no, no, no. In terms of the idea of the rhetorical presidency, because yeah. I I haven't really done a ton of research beyond reading you know the popular books uh, uh you know of of pre mass media presidents, but I had never really grokked that idea of the 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 way that we used to understand the president in a pre-mass media age, which we'll really, you know, define as, you know, nationwide radio and television. There were still, you know, pamphlets and newspapers and everything was in his relationship to Congress, that it's communications with Congress, what the president would prefer Congress do, and then Congress's own will on what they believe should go forward. And it's not until really the, the celebrity of the presidency you know, becomes insatiable for mass media that they're even able to just say, oh, I talk to you, the people. And and if you if Congress wants to defy the will of the people, then they can do that at their peril. That is that is crazy. I had I never really thought of that. Yeah, it's a fascinating idea and, and a really great insight. Um, so myself and a few other colleagues have written about what we call the post-rhetorical presidency. And so that's the way that, um, you know, I was describing since George W. Bush, um, you know, they've really boxed out the media. So, you know, it used to be that the mainstream media and the president had a reciprocal, cooperative, you know, mutually beneficial relationship. Um, the president gave the media or the press um, content, <laughs> talking points, you know, frames, all that kind of stuff. They gave them information and um, and the media carried it. And, and there would be, you know, sort of long quotations and um, all kinds of things like that. And what started to happen after Watergate is that that relationship really started to sour. Um, the media became more critical of the president. They started using um, you know, shorter and shorter sound bites so that the president had a harder time getting their message through the media to the people. Um, and it really just became um, a much more competitive relationship. So when you hear Trump talking about how much he hates the fake news, it's really within that context of the relationship between the press and the president that he's able to make that argument. Um, you know, prior to that, you wouldn't have had, you know, for example, JFK after the Bay of Pigs, um, you know, goes on the news and makes a speech and says how important the media is, even though the media has just, you know, reported, you know, on this near disaster that he had. He went on the news and said how important it was that he was held accountable and that the media did its job right and how lucky we were as a nation to have the media doing that. Um, you know, that's a very cooperative relationship, whereas the relationship we've had, you know, definitely in the last 15, 20 years, but more than that even, has been much more competitive. Well, uh, cooperative is also how I would describe the relationship between the media and, and then the Kennedys. <laughs> I think that they had a very cooperative <laughs> relationship, uh, sure. uh, which which probably earned some of that will for him, even in a moment of, uh, of, of, of failure, uh, to, to have a little give back there. That, yeah. that is, uh, uh, super, super, super interesting though. Like the, the, uh, even in moments of conflict, 
the president just had a forever outside uh, outsized voice via the media. Here, the only thing I would challenge you on is, is the relationship between, and let's focus on Trump, uh, Trump and the media really not cooperative. They, they certainly are uh, uh, adversarial in terms of the presentation. And I'm not suggesting that there is a, a secret uh, of alliance between Trump and the media by any means, but certainly part of the reason why he's been so effective in setting an agenda is because the media is aghast at the things that he says. And that means column inches and airtime minutes. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's yeah. really where the blanket coverage comes from. So how do we define that if it is not cooperative and not adversarial, but something in between? Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. And so what um, what I argue, I don't know if I, I sent you this article on the outrage presidency, but um, I wrote an article recently that sort of is related to this about how Trump has used outrage and outrage media, um, outrage tactics uh, to keep us attentive and engaged. Uh, and it's the difference between um, how Trump uses the post-rhetorical presidency and how George W. Bush and Barack Obama use the post-rhetorical presidency. You know, they use social media too, um, but they didn't do it to cause outrage. And outrage is amazing at getting attention. Um, right. You know, if mm -hmm. a three year old throws a tantrum, <laughs> that's outraging behavior and you pay attention to that, um, you know, you don't approve of it necessarily. Right. So your comment that the media um, covers Trump, you know, in a critical way is absolutely true. He's had, you know, just negative co commentary um, and coverage. But um, but he, he just is a master at drawing their attention. Um, right. And and getting the attention and engagement of his supporters to defend him. So, you know, really different in strategy. So, for example, um, I wrote a, an analysis of how Barack Obama announced that he was going to do um, an, an immigration reform. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's an interesting case study because he was going to give an Oval Office address, you know, at night or whatever. And maybe it wasn't in the Oval Office, but, you know, presidential address. And um, he, apparently they didn't ask the networks to clear the time for it. Um, and the networks didn't carry it. And it was during sweeps week. And they were like, yeah, not going to do that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when you look at how they announced it, they announced it on Facebook. They didn't have, you know, the, the White House press corps. Um, there, they didn't, they announced it to their supporters first. And so when they had a press conference about an hour and a half later, you know, the press were, were aghast. They were like, you know, what is going on? You're announcing this news, not to us, not through us, but, you know, directly to the people. And, uh, Josh Ernest was like, yeah, we did that. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? We noticed that you covered it already. So, you know, what, where's the downside for us? Um, and that to me is a really telling example of how that relationship really fractured and changed. And the White House could directly communicate. They didn't need to go through the White House press corps, you know, and there were all kinds of protests about that. You know, lots of letters were written sternly worded from the White <laughs> House press corps saying, hey, you know, like we're supposed to have the privileged position to disseminate the news. 
And the Obama administration was like, yeah, but you're not, you know, you're not really on our team. <laughs> yeah. So if we want to, you know, communicate our message effectively, we're going to do that in, you know, all platforms that we can do that in. Um, and Trump has, you know, certainly followed in Obama's footsteps in using, um, you know, direct communication to supporters. Yeah. I mean, there's just a lot more from Trump and, and that. Yeah. To... And it's a different style. So yeah. they're both post rhetorical, but Obama was post rhetorical and presidential, you know, in quotes. Sure. And Trump has said, I don't want to be presidential. He's like, I'm I think that's boring. I want to be modern day presidential. Um, and that's what I mean when I say he's the outreach yeah. president. Oh, certainly so. I, I don't think any, but even Trump supporters listening would say certainly yeah, yeah, yeah. there is there is a <laughs> swirl around the president at all times. And and whether you believe that he is picking at a liberal news media and they are reacting in kind and he is therefore, you know, plucking them like guitar strings or he is just a, a bull in a china shop. You can't deny that there is indeed a swirl. Uh, yes. <laughs> where, where I want to follow up with you on the Obama administration is that what seemed to be the playbook up through Obama was a, a, a don't make a mistake strategy. That no matter what, any mess you make or the press can make about something is something that you then have to pick up. You need to make sure that your slate is clean, that you're messaging any uh, uh, any word that's critical about it needs an answer to, but it, it needs to be tidy and it needs to be in the right outlets or, and, and this is where Obama took it forward, uh, maybe sometimes we don't need the press at all. And, and we will deny uh, uh, the press briefings and, and we won't give them access to the president and we'll announce some of these big things on Facebook because guess what? They need us more than we need them. Uh, whereas Trump seems to be very knowledgeable of how the press works and what they need is content and he will give them content. It just may not be in the way that you've ever seen a president give content before would, would that be uh, uh you know similar to where your research has been yeah i think that's right and when you know the obama communications team talks about their strategy they would say you know we weren't trying to win the day we were trying to win you know the issue or we were trying to win the campaign or whatever um we weren't you know trying to win the news cycle and um, Trump is the opposite. Trump's trying to win the day. <laughs> Trump is always trying to win the news cycle. He's always trying to win the day. Um, you know, he cares, I, I think, primarily about the fact that we're talking about what he wants us to be talking about and on his terms. And, and it's also a strategy that at least, and maybe now we can turn more to the campaign side of it, but it really became very clear from the second that he came down his gilded escalator that none of the candidates in the GOP primary were prepared for that volume of communication. Nobody could set their own agenda when he was talking that effectively and capturing that amount of media attention every single day. And as it turned out, neither could Hillary Clinton when the press attention got even more uh, uh, hostile toward Trump there was still so much more of that. Is that something that you've gotten the sense? Uh, is has has anybody caught up with that fastball yet? 
<laughs> no, <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. So Trump completely dominated the airtime. I think it was something like a half a billion dollars of free airtime was given to Trump during the 2016 campaign. And nobody else could get a word in, um, you know, in the other 17 candidates or whatever it was, they, they all complained about it. Um, you know, they hated having to to talk to the media about Trump every day, which is what, you know, if anyone asked them anything, it was about what they thought about what Trump had done or said, (laughs) Um, you know, and so he really just, you know, dominated the conversation in a way that nobody since has been able to take away from him. Now, that being said, um, coronavirus don't care about mean tweets, right? (laughs) (laughs) So he has lost the news cycle. You know, he wanted to talk about his great economy. He wanted to talk about Bernie Sanders being a socialist. Um, you know, he wanted to talk about how he was going to win reelection in a landslide and keep America great again. But that's not the conversation that we're having, you know, so he doesn't want to talk about systemic racism. He doesn't want to talk about anything that is currently dominating the news cycle. And, um, you know, he's tried to spin those issues onto ground that he does want to cover um, or at least, you know, is consistent with his message or advantageous to him. But he's having a hard time. You know, and that's the biggest question I've talked about on this show is I don't get why he didn't want to own the testing thing. Because it seems like the most Trumpian thing to talk about that I'm a builder. We built the biggest testing system in the world. And, and, And to shame the rest of the world for how little they're testing compared to how much we are testing now. And that would feed into his 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 strategy on on saying well cases and deaths are different blah 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 younger people are getting sick but he he does seem just allergic to wanting to get anywhere near the 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 coronavirus stuff in terms of what he wants to message about he 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 keeps trying to find other flyers to uh see whether or not those will catch yeah i think you're right um you know Initially, of course, he wanted to downplay the virus. He didn't want it to be the story. He didn't want to have to talk about it. Um, And then there came a point where he had to. And so that's when we had the, okay, I'm going to be the wartime president. You know, this virus is a war. We're going to have these daily press briefings. Uh, And then that backfired for him. And so, you know, now he's just sort of like you say, he's just unwilling to even really talk about it. This thing with the testing, I think you're right. The framing it as I built these great tests would have been better for him. Um, You know, there there were ways that he could have folded the the messaging into, um, you know, this this crisis. But he just was really resistant. And I think he backed himself into a corner that he he sort of couldn't get out rhetorically. Well, if Donald Trump is the everlasting machine of content and he is blasting it out all the time, no matter uh, uh, whether it catches or not in these uh, moments where we have gigantic news stories that are overshadowing it, the opposite strategy seems to be his 2020 opponent with Joe Biden. He has uh, employed what I've called the the hide a Biden strategy of uh, <laughs> of being out of the public eye, seemingly believing that Donald Trump's uh, uh, unpopularity will be Biden's greatest asset as a candidate. And at least to this point, the polls are showing that that 
is not a terrible idea, but uh, Jen, what do you think the difference between Biden's strategy now versus Biden's strategy as a senator and vice president? Yeah, um, I think you're right. Absolutely. Um, I think Biden is playing the role of the generic Democrat at this point. <laughs> he might as and, well. Uh, he might as well be, you know, value over replacement Democrat. That that is, <laughs> that is his 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 uh, his his central theme of the campaign. I, I mean, I really do think that's right, and, and I don't know that that's the wrong strategy. I mean, that, that might be at exactly least up till right. now. Up till now, it is. I mean, I've criticized it a lot because I think that there are things you can do. You can set up your own narrative here, but uh, uh, up till now, he has he has pretty much just been in there. But then again, when he was in the Senate, and certainly when he was Vice President, when he probably got his best press, he was best known for the guy who says the thing maybe too soon and and yeah. is is on the right side of history for that yeah yeah um yeah i mean there certainly are um fun biden memes um <laughs> that i remember from way back then um yeah i mean i think i think he's he's playing it very smart in the sense that he is just running as a generic democrat um that allows him to avoid you know the framing that trump wanted to use um he's still trying to employ it um, but I, I think it's having a harder time sticking with Biden, um, at least right now. We'll see what happens um, as we move forward. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's a change election year, according to political science fundamentals, right? So the fundamentals say if the economy's bad, um, if the nation believes that we're headed in the wrong direction, we're on the wrong track, then that usually means that the incumbent will lose. And that is exactly the way it looked in 2016. So, you know, in 2016, any Republican should have beaten Hillary Clinton. And, um, you know, in this election, any Democrat should beat Donald Trump. Um, we'll see, you know? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the, the, the difference is, is that these fundamentals are so crazy because they went so haywire so fast, right? Like, yeah. and, and, and we, we have a hard time, at least I do in, in watching this, I have a hard time even now when, I mean, heck, we, we should be at the democratic national convention today if, if things weren't crazy. Uh, but like it, Things are just so, so, so wacky, and and we don't know whether or not they're going to be different by November. So who knows whether or not even those fundamentals of the economy and, and the right or wrong direction will be substantially different in three months, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, also political fi science fundamentals would say, you know, that— um, the population usually sticks with a wartime president in yeah. moments of crisis. We stay the course. So, you know, it, it just really depends. I mean, it, Trump might be Herbert Hoover here. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if he is, but then again, Trump might win reelection and that also wouldn't surprise me. Um, it's, it's one of those things that's just impossible to know what's going to happen. I think that's why we're all so on edge and attentive. Let me go back to Biden for a second, because it, it seems kind of counterintuitive based on what we just talked about. Trump's great at setting a narrative. Biden is running against him and his way of combating Trump setting a narrative is by literally offering no counter narrative except to say that he is indeed a Democrat running for president. So why <laughs> if why would that be an effective strategy? 
Well, yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, it's not that he's not offering, um, you know, information. Um, the message from the Biden campaign is that Trump is a colossal failure. Sure. <laughs> that's the message you hear all day from yeah. them, just every day. Um, and I think that uh, Biden is using, you know, the again, quote unquote, presidential strategy <laughs> of, of, you know, not trying to be an outrage candidate, not trying to control the news narrative all day long, um, but instead trying to, you know, run a campaign and, and sort of be a little bit aloof and be like, you know, we're competent. Um, and, and you know that because we used to be in charge and or at least be a part of the team that was in charge. And the guy that's there now is clearly incompetent. And so, you know, this is what we need is to to solve problems and not, you know, get around, get get involved in all these messes and these controversies. You know, even Trump supporters will say that, you know, they're tired of Trump. They're tired of his tweets. They're tired of hearing him complain and whine and, you know, yell at the press. It, none of that stuff pulls well, actually, for him. Um, and so I think what you see is a communication strategy from Biden, which is very restrained. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, you know, he's a guy that that is is well known for both gaffes and for saying, you know, swear words <laughs> with yeah. a hot mic and uh, and maybe speaking some truths that that shouldn't be spoken um, with a hot mic. Um, and and, you know, so I think maybe the restraint is actually hard for him. <laughs> you know, I think he might like to be out there every day um, a little bit more of a brawler. Well, he certainly was when I was on the trail. He was the only candidate that would take actual organic just raise your hand and ask him a question Q&As. Like, he oh, definitely wow. wants to be out there. Now, that led to his most embarrassing moments on the trail. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe that is part of the reason why uh, uh, the people that are now running his campaign are making sure that he is he is only uh, viewable through pre-edited uh, and pre-shot things that they blast out over the internet. But he, I think his instinct is definitely there. And uh, uh, certainly we are going to see it at least on display for the debate. So maybe that's where we end here. What do you see with these debates, which are going to be unique as we have not really seen a traditional campaign up to this point? And it looks increasingly likely that we won't, uh, even through November. Yeah, the debates should be fascinating. Um, you know, of course, as a, a debate nerd, I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> Uh, I think, you know, so one of the things that Trump did very successfully in 2016 is, um, and, and it's the same thing that he does with the press, is that he basically breaks the frame, right? The spectacle operates under specific rules, and he'll call those rules um, out, right? He'll call out the moderator, he'll call out his opponent, he'll do, you know, things that are not expected or not typical during a debate or during, you know, a news conference or whatever. And that has given him a lot of power. Um, and, and typically his opponents haven't known how to respond to that, whether that's the media or whether that's moderators or whether that's other debaters. Um, you know, I don't know if Biden, I'm sure his team will try to prep him on what to do in that situation. Um, 
and and you know I, we don't know we don't know how yeah. he'll handle it um that's kind of the drama of it i think i mean based on how he handled the democratic debates i i don't know if the, the the Biden that had a very good performance against Paul Ryan in 2012 is is still in the building, uh, uh, you know, without getting into any kind of medical stuff that that guy did not seem to show up in any of the 50,000 debates we had in this Democratic primary over the last year and a half. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see. It will be. It will be. Um, and I, I don't remember all of the details of the um of the the one that you mentioned, but I do remember him sort of snickering and. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that was that um, yeah, was made the, him look like a child. That I was think. the malarkey, and you know yeah. that's a bunch of stuff, and uh, uh, you know that was, you know, Biden had two very 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 good uh, uh, vice presidential debates. Now back yeah. then they were looked at as maybe a little uh, 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 grinning and cartoonish. Although the first one was against Sarah Palin, where I mean that was basically a Warner Brothers Looney Tunes kind of. Uh, uh, <laughs> situation unfolding but certainly in 2012 uh it was well regarded if even just as a uh, a blood stopper because obama was thought to have lost the first one against mitt romney so yeah that's right but i don't know i don't know with with, with this one where you know he's talking about playing the record and and uh he's yeah, apologizing I, I, to the moderator when he Biden. goes over time like I see Biden just sort of looking at Trump and being like, dude, you failed, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and, and I think that, you know, he's of the same age, a little bit older and, um, you know, is sort of able to stand next to that guy and say that in a way that other candidates who were younger than Trump in 2016 weren't able to do. Um, you know, and I know that Trump will he'll turn around and say the same thing to Biden and say, you know, what did you do when you were in office? You're part of the problem. Yeah. Um, it's what Americans will believe, like, is the worst problem at this point. Like, is it worse, you know, to have failed in the last year with these crises that we've had? Or is it worse, you know, to have not done um, better eight years ago or four years ago? We'll I, see. I think I think rhetorically, the biggest thing that Biden has to watch out for is how quick he has been to anger and how bad he is when he does get angry. Like almost uh -huh. yeah. every situation where he's embarrassed himself, it's because he felt put upon and what might have read as, you know, a jocular uh, Senate uh, playing around back in the day now comes off a little bit more angry. And, and that's where the, you know, listen, fat, let's do push-ups and have a running contest stuff comes in. <laughs> or or even uh, if you look at the, the if you don't vote for me, you ain't black comment was when he felt that he was being challenged for, for ending the interview. So Sure, sure. And, and Trump equally, right? Very thin-skinned. And so I wouldn't be surprised if the strategy on both sides was to try to get the other side on oh, tilt. I, I think 100% <laughs> that that is going to be the strategy. The only difference is that, and this is really where Trump's entire strategy has come from, the New York media landscape. And He's just used to getting angry and yelling and that being the content a little bit more than Biden is, at least in my estimation. But yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, well, I'll tell you what, this uh, this has flown by. Uh, uh, my guest has been uh, uh, Jennifer Murchia. She is, of course, an associate professor in the Department of Communication at Texas A&M University. And she's got a brand new book out, Demagogue for President, the Rhetorical Genius 
of Donald Trump. Go pick that up as well. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. That was my pleasure. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our program. A reminder that if you can't get enough of politics, 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 two days a week for free in your podcast feed, well, you can double that. Be at the $3 level at our Patreon. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Are you on more? You want more? I do two hours of live streaming four days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. I got to take Wednesday off so I can do this show. But you can get that at twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. You know, if you don't like Twitch, you ain't never heard of Twitch. Maybe you heard of Twitch now because of the pandemic. But you're not down to just sit and watch me blather on. You're on the mo- you're on the on the move, on the go. Well, download the Twitch app free. Find me, Justin R. Young. Just search Justin R. Young. Easy peasy. You're gonna follow me. It's a heart right there on the on the screen. And that means you're gonna get notifications whenever I go live. That also means that you can set me to audio only. Yeah. It's basically another free two-hour live radio show that you get on, on the app for free. Come on, can't beat it. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. Also, man, I'm giving you all this free political content on the free political newsletter, freepoliticalnewsletter.com, five days a week, five stories a day, mostly gifts, sometimes hot takes. Let's go ahead and get into our Titanic $10 tier. You do that by going to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Modesto's own Logan Cisco, N.H. Blumpkin, Chad, Headphones, Neil, Water Ride Scoop, MacBook Pro, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle Age Mike, DTNS, Hack 5, Brad, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Frozen Summers, Zach and Cheese, Captain Bunzo, Zombie Dog, Berkeley, Steven, your boy Craig, TroubleFilm.com, Robert, Mr. Tallyman, D-Laser, I Poop My Pants, uh, Just Another Pilot, Seriously, I Really Poop My Pants, Guys, honestly, I'm breaking up the Titanic $10 tier. So somebody has signed up for $10 per episode. So I read, I poop my pants. And somebody else has now also signed up with seriously, I poop my pants. You make me so proud. Severio, Martin, Alec, government unfiltered. Spawn! Jerry, Gamer, Goo, Andres, Archie, Jay, Milius, The Gen, Emily, Adam, Zach, Olin and Angela, Christopher, DL, Brian, Ryan, insert scoop name, Miranda, Robert, Brandon, John Terica, Glenn Wolf, Brand, Chili Scoop, Kevin, Dustin, Daycat, Richard, Nick, Mike, Lindsay, Angela, Mato, Random Complexity, what? Dead Man and Andrew. Again, you want to be part of them? You head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com. You want to follow me on social media? It is Justin R. Young everywhere. And of course, you email in theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Anything that you uh, have on your mind, we're doing the mailbags on Friday. Till then, is your old pal Justin Robert Young 
saying some shows talk about politics still more talk about politics and there was one the other day I saw that talked about politics but this is the only show that dares talk about how Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>